Pushkin. Lucinda Williams is defying convention. While most of her peers have settled into a well-worn groove, the 67-year-old alt-country icon just released an album that's way more punk than country. Lucinda's early projects were with Folkways Records. And sonically, she fit right in with the label's other releases by Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, and Lead Belly. But her first big success came in the late 80s, after she left her folky persona behind in favor of a more modern sound, something like a Bonnie Raitt meets Bruce Springsteen. And now she's changing it up again. She compares her latest album's raw grit to early Stooges records, Lucinda's snarling and growling all over the place like she was Iggy Pop. And she's getting critical acclaim. Rolling Stone says her album is electrifying and calls it her best release in years. Lucinda spoke with Bruce Hedlum from her home in Nashville about her evolving sound and how her new album was influenced by politics and an abusive relationship. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce Hedlum and Lucinda Williams. We should mention we are doing this over Zoom. You just lost part of your roof in a tornado. You're uh, <laughs> in a tough few months, but there's been real losses too. And I don't want to dwell on it, but two people you knew, um, John Prime and Hal Wilner, who produced yeah. your records. Could you just tell me maybe about the first time you met John Prime? Yeah, well, I was, yeah, we found out about both of their devs on the same day, mm-hmm. by the way, which was, yeah, the day from hell. Um, well, I was living here in the 90s in Nashville. And, no, wait a minute. I met John before that. After I first moved to Los Angeles in the mid-80s, and I went to play at the, uh, it's a, Famous folk festival in Canada that's been going on for a long time. Oh, uh, Mariposa? Yes, I think it was a Mariposa Folk Festival. And John was there. He was on the bill. And I have a photograph of us, actually, that somebody took from there. And that's when I first met him. And then flash forward several years later, I'm living in Nashville. And he he was living here. It's a fairly small city and it was even smaller then. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so we crossed paths again and he asked me to open some shows for him. And, and then, but the story that I always remember that gets, that I always love to tell is when John and I decided to try to write together. And so we met for drinks and dinner at this cafe and then we went over to Old Boy's studio, his studio at Old Boy Records on Music Row at the time. And it was when I was working on the car, songs for Car Wheels and I had Drunken Angel I'd been working on forever and I was stuck with that song. I couldn't seem to finish it. So I thought I would show it to him and see if he had any ideas for it. And so he came up with some a couple of lines that were 
great for a John Prine song, <laughs> but not, you know, kind of humor, you know, that great sly, witty humor he had. Right. You know, but they didn't really fit for a Lucinda Williams song. And he knew that. I knew it. He knew it. And we just, you know, the rest of the night, we just laughed and, you know, played songs and, you know, talked until the sun came up. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it was one of the best evenings I've ever spent, you know, with another songwriter. And, so, and of course, I sang on um, a couple of albums with them. Right. A couple of songs on some albums and, you know. So tell me about, because um, Hal Wilner produced one of your albums. and I'm- Hal Wilner produced the West album, yeah. And that was a shock um, because we didn't even know he'd gotten sick or anything. You know, he wasn't in the hospital or anything. It was just Hal Wilner died, you know, so... With John, we knew, of course, you know, he was in the hospital and, you know, there was always that possibility, which shouldn't make it easier, of course. But with Hal, we had no forewarning at all. Yeah. So we we should talk, we're going to talk about a lot of things, but we should talk about the new record. Uh, It's got a heavy, almost garage band sound. Now, you've done that a lot, like, Unsuffer me and change the locks. Yeah, I have done that, and I've wanted to do more of that. You know, for this one, do you do you write the songs and then get in the studio and think I know it makes sense, or do the songs come prepackaged with like that a fuzzy guitar? No, I I just you know I go through a writing phase. Well, I'm always you know coming up with lines and notes and this. You know, I keep a running, uh, you know, like a briefcase full of songs that are half finished or titles for songs, ideas for songs. I mean, that's an ongoing thing. Mm-hmm. And But I'm not a little disciplined where I'll sit down every single day and say, okay, I'm going to work on writing. You know, I don't do that. I should do that, I guess. But whatever. That's I've accepted that about myself, you know. It seems to be working for you, so don't change it now. Anyway, it comes out. I get them out. So whatever yeah. it takes. So I get in that writing mode and then I'm just writing, 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 you know, for like two weeks straight. This just all came together kind of magically. I mean, we went in with to with Ray Kennedy. Ray had invited us just to come in and do a couple of tracks just to see what happens kind of thing. Right. You know, it wasn't like this big official, okay, we're gonna do the whole album with at Ray at his with Ray at his studio. So even that was really was kind of spontaneous, you know, we went in and we were in between tours, so we didn't have that much time. We had a couple, a few days in between runs and we went in and started putting a couple of these things down and right off the bat, we knew, you know, we, there's, we got something here, mm-hmm. you know, and somehow Ray just, I mean, he just tuned right in to, you know, the sound and everything. It's, I guess it's a combination of Ray's expertise, the acoustics in the studio. You never really know, you know? Yeah. At one point, I asked Tom, I said, you know, just hypothetically, what would happen if we took Ray and went to a different studio? You know, would we get the same sound? And and at one point, Tom said, I don't think we would. Mm. You know, it's just all those things, you know, happen at the same time to make it work. And do you think it's a sound that just suits these songs 
Yeah, that's the thing. And we caught some other ones too, but it became evident at a certain point there's a certain sound here and these certain songs are working really well. To, you know, it's starting to come into place like that. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have talked about the sound of the record, but to me, what was really a shift for you was a lot of the language in the record. Mm-hmm. Because, and I think most people, when they think of you, think of, you know, you very evocative language and not just visual images. You know, you've, <laughs> car wheels on a gravel road. Right. Maybe one of my favorite lines of yours, which is uh, heavy blankets cover lonely girls. Oh, thank you. Lonely girls, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this album, the language is much more, it's, it's more direct, but it's more uh, apocalyptic, for lack of a better yeah, word. I don't know. Yeah. Was it, was it deliberate? Were you trying to put away some of your older ideas or not really, because, I mean, you know, I have some other songs that are more, you know, that are kind of like what you're talking about. But, you know, I just didn't put them on this album. It just felt like the right time to do. I just, right off the bat, I love the sound that we were getting in the studio. Mm-hmm. And it felt very freeing. It felt liberating and cathartic. To the band felt this way too. Everybody's in the same, you know, we're all feeling this angst mm-hmm. and <laughs> this frustration and anger. And but it's a healthy anger. It's, you know, that kind of anger, like I want to change things and we got to do something. It, it's, it's kind of, there's a sense of desperation, I think, right now. You know, I mean, it's pretty, <laughs> things have reached a pretty uh, crucial point. Right. You know, in this country. And so I guess I just felt like this is a time to kind of, you know, take myself out of it a little bit and, and just kind of, but I'm still in there though, you know. Oh, yeah. But, um, but it's just, they're more kind of universal, not necessarily political songs, just more songs for humanity, I guess, maybe. The thing is, it all started happening at the same time that Tom and I got engaged and got married and everything. And so that that was obviously a big, huge change in my life. And as a songwriter, I was aware of the fact that, you know, it was kind of a test also, to tell you the truth, you know, to see if I could do this. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I couldn't keep writing unrequited love songs forever. Yeah. You know, I had to branch out into other things, which I'd been wanting to do anyway. Is that what, I mean, it's a pretty dark record. Yeah, but, but I feel like it's hopeful still. But, you know, I've always had people say my music was dark, even as far back as Sweet Old World, you know, because I had two songs on there about suicide. Yeah. You know, Sweet Old World and Paniola and, right. you know, um, people would say, oh, God, you know, your songs are so dark. But I've always dug in there. You know, I've always, like, gone beneath the surface and dug out the dirt and pulled it up for everybody to see. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, this is, come on, people, you know, wake up. I mean, that's always been me. Yeah. And I guess this is just kind of maybe pushed it a little bit more that way, you know, and people are going, wow, it really couldn't have come out at a better time, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> everybody's just responding. It's like a salve. That, that's the 
response I'm getting more is people are saying, thank you, I needed this kind of mm. thing. Tell me a bit about, you don't run, uh, sorry, you don't run me? Um, I got the name wrong. Uh, oh, you don't rule me. You don't rule me, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, we're all in the same, it's like, yeah. it's, you find it hard to focus. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people are talking about that, that it's hard to focus. It That's is. why I'm glad I have all this press and everything right now, because it gives me something to focus on, you know, right. like, I have to get up by a certain time, I have to do this, <laughs> you know, because otherwise I'm just, I'm like sitting on the couch with crossword puzzles right. all day, yeah, you know. Too. Actually, I was getting it mixed up in my mind with... uh you don't own me, that Leslie Gore song. And I was like, oh, oh that's yeah. not it. I love that song. That is a good song. You know what? And they're similar, actually. Um, but anyway, yeah, I got that from there's a Memphis mini song mm -hmm. by the same title. And yeah, I discovered her music a long time ago, back in the 70s. Yeah, you did and you did uh me and my chauffeur on one of your yeah, first albums. I recorded yeah. that me and my chauffeur blues on the uh, first Folkways album. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she was a real important um, musical figure for me because, you know, to my knowledge, she was at least not the only one, but one of a handful, you could probably count them on one hand, of women who played guitar and wrote their own songs, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and so this is one that she recorded that her version is more the personal thing, you know, to the to her man saying, you can't rule me, you can't take my money to, you know. She always wrote, all of her songs are about all these bad men, you mm -hmm. know, who did her wrong and everything. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of made it more topical, I guess, or, you know. Mm -hmm. This is, you can't rule me. Man, I got a right to talk about what I see. Way too much is going wrong, and it's right from me. You can't rule me. You can't rule me. You can't take my money and try to rule me, too. You might expect me to follow. But I ain't gonna fall in line I tell you what, this much I know The dotted line ain't been signed You can't rule me You can't rule me You can't take my soul and try to rule me too You might beat me, you might cheat me And try to make me change my mind you might sick me, you might trick me. I'm gonna tell you one last time. You can't rule me. You can't rule me. You can't take my money and try to rule me too. You won't go and tell me what's good for me. You won't tell me what I'm paying for. The game is fixed, it's plain to see, but I will play no more. You can't rule me. You can't rule me. You can't take my money and try to rule me too. You can't rule me. 
Song. I love yeah. that. I admit, a little bit of me. I want. I went back. A little bit of me wanted that to be in the uh, Memphis mini version. I went back and looked. It wasn't. Yeah, it's real similar. It, it's funny how that song and and the Leslie Gore song. They're they're personal songs that sort of become political songs in a yes. way. Yes. Or it's yeah. like, uh, what Aretha Franklin did with respect. There's yes, that's a, I love that. Yeah, I love that analogy, that comparison. That's great. When you write uh, a political song like that or a song that's politically tinged, how is that different than when you're writing a personal song? Are they come easier? Are they harder? Um, I still approach it a lot in the same way. I mean... Um, cause I still have to feel like I'm in it and it's coming from me, you know, it's something that I'm frustrated about too. So it's not like I'm separating myself from the song, but, um, I think it is, it, to me, it's been harder in the past to write political songs or topical songs in the way that, because I always wanted to be able to write one like Masters of War, right. you know, the Bob Dylan protest songs that I grew up listening to. Mm-hmm. A hard rain's going to fall, you know, times they are changing. And, you know, those kinds of songs, those are, and, you know, I've taken a stab at it over the years. But to me, like, I don't really call them protest songs. That's why I don't really call them that because it's more about the suffering of people and humanity and, um, and the rights of people and, like I apply the same feelings or that song, you know, born to be loved. You weren't born to suffer. You weren't born. When I sing, when I wrote that song, when I sing it, I think about child abuse. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about the rights of that children don't have. And these little kids that are, you know, abused and beaten up and thrown into a closet and, you know, a lot of dark stuff that, mm-hmm. That's that's in that song, but it might not just be right in your face. Right. You know. You do have a very harrowing song on this album uh, about an abusive relationship. Yeah, that was me. Yeah. I used to judge and say, oh, you know, um, that's never going to be, you know, I'm, I wouldn't let that happen, mm-hmm. you know. And there I was. You know, I met this guy who was sober. When I met him, he was living in a, the most stupid thing I've ever done. He was living in a sober living house. Right. That's the irony of it. And I'm thinking, <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? The guy's sober. He's in a sober living house. You know, I didn't know, you know, stupid me. Hello. If somebody's in a sober living house, they're there for a reason. Mm-hmm. They're not supposed to leave. You know, yeah. and move in with you. <laughs> you know, so 
he moves out of the sober living house in with me and surprise, surprise, you know, starts first. It just starts off with a little drinking. Next thing you know, he's, you know, down in the basement of the house shooting speedballs, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it just escalated. I, the only way I could look at it now, it was a, it was a, you know, it was a lesson. It was just um, proof in point that it doesn't matter, you know, what race you are, you know, what class you're from, or what, you know, any of that, you know, you can find yourself in, in those situations, mm-hmm. you know. Do you ever think sort of by analogy, because you're talking about the political situation, um, you said, like, how did you let yourself get into a bad personal situation? Do you ever wonder how you see the country getting in a bad political situation? Yeah, I guess it's a, it's interesting. When you said that, I started so, suddenly seeing the this kind of um, metaphor, something running between the domestic abuse, you know, situation and then the situation with, you know, Trump and his cronies and everything, you know, because, I mean, it, it does feel like abuse. It feels like a national abuse. Right. You know, we're all being abused, actually. You know, it, we don't feel, we don't feel cared for. We don't feel comforted. We'll be right back with Lucinda Williams after a quick break. Hey there, I'm Ashley Ford, host of the Chronicles of Now podcast. Chronicles of Now commissions amazing authors like Roxane Gay, Colin McCann, Carmen Maria Machado, and Curtis Sittenfield to write short fiction inspired by the headlines. Each episode features a new work of fiction inspired by the biggest stories of our time, like what does COVID-19 do to our relationships? How do we make sense of climate change and extinction? And perhaps most mysteriously, what is going on with Trump's tweets? Because in such uncertain times, sometimes art, fiction, is the only way to make sense of it all. The show is great for fans of short speculative fiction, historical novels, podcasts that go behind the news, and narrative shows like Radiolab and The Moth. The Chronicles of Now is imaginative storytelling at its most compelling. Authors helping us understand our world. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Brought to you by Pushkin Industries. We're back with more of Bruce's conversation with Lucinda Williams. Do you worry that, because your stuff hasn't been explicitly political before, that it's going to turn off some of your audience? I'm probably going to lose some fans, Mm -hmm. you know, but so be it. I mean, I thought about it. Honestly, I thought the song that was going to disturb people the most would be waking up, you know, because it's so just right in your face. But the song that's been the one, but that's not really a political song, but the song that's probably obviously most people, you would probably think would be the one that it is happening with, which is Man Without a Soul. Right. And you, did you, I I read a story that you posted that at the time site. There was an article that came out in the New York Times that, ironically enough, said something like, um, where is, the tr- where is the soul of Donald Trump? Or something like that. Mm-hmm. And we were all 
going, wow, this is really interesting. I wonder if whoever wrote the article had heard the song or is it just a coincidence? So anyway, we posted a link to the article with a link to the song, Man Without a Soul, on my Facebook page. And I started looking at it one night and started seeing all the comments that were coming in. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked to see some of them. One of them said, well, I thought Lucinda was a compassionate person. You know, she wrote that song, Compassion. Mm-hmm. This isn't compassionate. She has no right to write a song like this. This isn't right. That really bothered me. Like, I mean, but that's also an interesting. Because I am a compassionate person. Well, wasn't that one of the songs that was taken from a, one of the poems of your father? Yeah, that's what they were talking about. You know, they said he's whoever it was said she wrote this song, "Compassion." He says, "I don't see anything compassionate at all about this." Mm-hmm. Like I was just, I had gone over the line. Right. See, now I'm worried about this song, Man Without a Soul. There's not enough compassion in it. I'm going to be worried now. There's no light in 
lost You're a man without a soul Now the access will be closing A sad life will be exposed No dealer and no deals You're a man without a soul how do you think this story is? It's not a matter of how. It's just a matter of when. Cause it's coming down. Yeah, it's coming down. Yeah, it's coming down. Oh, you should stop worrying. Okay. That song's completely transformed when you do it that way. Yeah. It's it's it it doesn't it like it just tightens around your heart that song. I know. I want I see I like the acoustic version I did of this. The demo version I like better than the I like my vocal better on it. I don't know. Maybe I'll put out a put out the acoustic. Do an acoustic version, yeah. Version, you know, it, it is a different thing. It's a different feel. Yeah. This song was Tom brought this song to me. He brought the idea to me, and I actually resisted it at first, you know, because I sort of felt that way. Like, you know, remember that song that Neil Young, that line in a Neil Young song where he says, "Even Richard Nixon has got soul." Mm -hmm. And we talked about it. You know, I said, "Well." You know, everybody's got a soul. Even Donald Trump has a soul. I mean, you know. And then Tom said, well, just look at it as an expression. Not, don't, it's not meant to be taken literally. Right. And, and also Tom said when he was first writing the song, when he was looking at it, he was imagining the guy in my abusive relationship. He said he was, to him, it's as much about something like that as it is the president of the United States. It's not necessarily, you know, he keep, he was tell he would tell me like, well, don't tell people it's about Trump. It doesn't have to be, you know, and I said, well, I'm not telling people it's about Trump. They're telling me, you know, <laughs> people hear it and they go, oh, that song about Trump, you know? Yeah. So now I'm kind of stuck with that. <laughs> and, you know. Well, let me ask you, do you have, the guy in the abusive relationship, do you feel compassion for him in some way or not? At all? Yes, I feel compassion for, you know, that's just how I am. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel sorry for Donald Trump. You know, I do. He's a, he's mentally ill. He needs help. He needs, but he not doesn't need to be trying to run the country. If you just, you if know? you just hurry out an album called, I feel sorry for Donald Trump, I think all your fans will come. <laughs> They'll just come back. 
You can walk the streets of Tennessee and you'll be safe. People are losing friends over this. I mean, never mind fans, you know, people are unfriending people right and left on Facebook, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a cousin, I have a first cousin who I adore, I love and simply adore, who became a Trump person, Trump supporter. I'm shocked because our grandfather was a socialist Democrat, Methodist minister civil rights supporter and equal rights and all of that. Those, that's the family I've come from on my dad's side. And here's my cousin. What happens to people? I do want to talk a bit more about your family. Uh, not everybody grows up in, the, in a household with a famous poet. Did he influence your early writing directly? I'm sure. I'm sure he did. I'm sure his work did. I mean, I'm sure. When I started writing songs, I would show him, you know, I was, my father and I were real close. We bonded mm-hmm. uh, for when I was very young, you know, because my mother was suffering from pretty severe mental illness. And so my dad would kind of take the, you know, sort of take up the slack, so to speak, you know. So he and I were really close. And so as soon as I learned to read and write, I was writing little poems and stories and things, you know. You know, then that turned into, I started taking guitar lessons when I was 12 years old in 1965. And then I started, you know, writing songs and all. And, you know, the more I got into that, I started, I would show him some things and he would, he would critique it really like a, really, you know, professor. You know, he would be real honest with me and but gentle, but honest, you know, and give me constructive criticism and make suggestions. And so I, I certainly learned definitely from it was almost like an apprenticeship in a way, you know, um, or a built in creative writing course at home, you know, because I never studied it in school. So that was kind of. That was that was where I learned probably the craft of it. Of it, uh, I did hear a story that your father once took you to meet Flannery O'Connor. Yeah, we were living in Macon, Georgia, and that's where I went to um, first. I started school there, so I was I was pretty young. I was about six years old, I guess maybe, and um, she lived in Milledgeville, Georgia. Right. In her old family farm, farmhouse. And um, so my dad and she, he considered her his greatest teacher. You know, she was his mentor. They had been communicating and talking on the phone and writing letters mostly. And so now that we were in Macon, she invited my dad to go to drive over to Milledgeville and visit one afternoon, so he took me with him. Flannery had a very regimented writing schedule, mm-hmm. you know. And so when we got there, she wasn't quite done with her writing period, you know. We got there about half an hour before she was finished. So my dad said he remembers seeing the her, the Venetian blinds to close, you know, <laughs> and she was working in a room and she pulled the blinds down and her housekeeper came out. We were on the front porch and her housekeeper came out and said, Mr. Williams, but uh, Miss Flannery's not quite done yet. You'll have to wait out here on the porch. 
very southern, very old mm-hmm. south, you know. And um, so we waited on the porch, and then after a little bit, the housekeeper came, opened the front screen door, and said, "Okay, Mr. Williams, you can come in." And and I stayed outside and played with her, or chased her peacocks, apparently. So that's my memory of it. But and then I, when I became a teenager, I read everything of hers. Mm-hmm. I just devoured it. Yeah. Uh, she had a great line. Um, uh, you know, somebody asked her, Southern Gothic, you know, why why does the South have, have so many freaks? And she said, we don't have more freaks than anybody else. We're just better at recognizing them. Yes. I thought it was such a great really? line. Why can't I think of something like that to say? Oh, you thought of plenty of things. Plenty of things. When I read her stuff, though, it all just made so much sense to me. I mean, I just said... God, I know what that per I've seen that person. I've seen that, that per- you know, my mother's side of the family, for God's sake. You know? We'll be back with more from Lucinda Williams after a quick break. We're back with Lucinda Williams performing Shadows and Doubts from her new album, Good Souls, Better Angels. With all you're going through Look at the carnage You left behind you You run into dead ends When you don't even try You cut off your friends when you get too high And now the press Has found you out One can only guess What this is about And your so-called friends they're out to surround you in all these loose hands are wrapping around you. These are the dark new days that much is true. There's so many ways 
to crush you. There's so many ways to crush you. Wow. That was fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, I'm real proud of that one. Um, where'd that come from? Well, um, you know, it's open for interpretation. You know, I wrote it about someone I know personally who was having problems with this, the whole Me Too movement mm. thing and had been accused of some things. And, um, you know, it's the first time I'd known anyone who was going through that and, you know, nothing had been proven yet, but of course, you know, all the accusations start ro rolling in and storming in, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, everybody abandoned him. He lost his management and his, he was supposed to have an album or two albums were supposed to be coming out. and Those got shelved. And I mean, just, you know, his whole world collapsed pretty much. And, you know, he's an artist I've always admired, you know, as far as his artistry. Yeah. And, you know, I was able to, it's a song about compassion mm -hmm. again, you know, and it could be about, I think it could be about anybody who's a victim, if you will, of, you know, the press or, and all of that, you know, people are talking about you and, and, you know, mm -hmm. the misunderstandings that come from, with all of that, you know. Um, tell me about When the Way Gets Dark. Well, you know, that's one of my simpler songs. That mm -hmm. At first I thought even, I wondered if, if it was even good enough, I guess, because it didn't really have those, you know, I guess that kind of depth or something, you know, lyrically. But there's something about it, the simplicity, I think, won out, you know. And, and I started experimenting with that kind of writing when I did, when I was doing Essence, the songs for Essence, because the thing is, like, Car Wheels really set the bar, right. you know, from, as far as songwriting goes. And so as soon as I had to start working on songs for the next album after Car Wheels, it was really challenging because I thought, well, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to always be writing songs of, you know, these narrative involved songs that some of which take a long time to write, mm -hmm. you know? I, so with essence, I gave myself permission to kind of just write some of these, like, are you down? Mm -hmm. You know, which is inspired by the music of short day, by the way. Yeah. Is that right? Um, okay. And it's just like this little simple song. But now when we play it, it's a great live because the band takes off and does this whole, you know, kind of musical interlude thing and people are dancing and stuff. And, you know, I kind of have to, every now and then I have to remind myself it's okay. Every single song doesn't have to be this literary infused narrative masterpiece, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, so... You know, but sometimes I worry about that. Have you been tempted, and I'm sure you're asked this all the time, to do sort of a bigger literary form, like a novel or a short story, or you like, um, do you like being a songwriter? 
One time I got asked to, I think actually Rosanne Catch was, this was years and years ago in the 90s. She was asking the songwriters to take one of their songs and make a short story out of it. Oh. And I thought, the first one that came to mind at that time, I was going to try it with Paniola. That song, because it had such a great story behind it, you know. But I sat down to try to do it and found it to be, I felt, you know, found it to be very challenging. And I don't know, maybe it's because I grew up around poets and novelists. Mm -hmm. And I sort of felt like, you know, my dad kind of drummed, kind of drilled into me that, you know, the difference between poetry and songwriting, for instance, you know, like. I remember one time I gave him something that I thought might become a poem. Mm-hmm. And because I wasn't sure, you know. And so I gave it to him and he said, he wrote me back and said, honey, I think this wants to be a song, you know. And it, there is kind of that sense of like, I'm the poet, you're the songwriter. Uh, well, I, I think you should go back. You should go back and do that with Roseanne Cash. I have the, I have this fantasy of, you know, when I'm older, having a big old house and one of those big, nice, comfortable desks and comfortable chairs, and I'm sitting there, you know, working on my novel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the shining comes to mind. And yeah. Tom brings me little sandwiches <laughs> <laughs> and then looks at the, you know, looks at the typewriter and, and I'm typing the same thing over and over again. No, I think you should do it and you should call the book cover version. You have to cover your own songs in short stories. <laughs> okay. Um, I've taken up so much of your time. It's been really wonderful. Yeah, it has. I feel like I've made a new friend. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Williams for taking the time to chat with and perform for Bruce. You can hear a new album and all our favorite Listen to Williams songs by heading to brokenrecordpodcast.com. And be sure to check out our YouTube channel, we're putting up all our old episodes and our new ones, sometimes with bonus content. You can subscribe at youtube.com slash Broken Record Podcast. Broken Record is produced with help from Jason Gambrell, Mia LaBelle, Leo Rose, and Martin Gonzalez for Pushkin Industries. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Thanks for listening.